Matthew 24, our text this morning is verses 15 through 25. The topic, Jesus warns the Jews in the great tribulation to not be fooled into coming out of hiding by reports he has returned prematurely. The title of our message, looking for the Lord in all the wrong places. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, this morning we're, I think, energized and excited, Lord, through our worship to come before you and hear from you. And we're reminded, Lord, that you're a God who speaks. You speak through creation, seeking to reveal your glory to mankind. Everyone ever conceived and born, Lord, has a conscience. And you've put eternity in their hearts, in our hearts, so that we have an understanding that we are eternal beings and that we seek a relationship with the eternal God. You've spoken through your word, and in these last days, you've spoken through your son, Jesus Christ, who came in the volume of the book to declare you. Jesus said, if you've seen him, you've seen the Father. And so, Lord, we have a full, complete revelation of you in Jesus Christ. And you have promised to go on speaking to us through the word, by the energy of your spirit, as he indwells us and as he comes into this place as we teach your word. I don't know what you want to say to me this morning or to others, Lord, because you're the sovereign God, but I do know that you want to speak, and I pray that we would be those that have ears to hear what the Spirit says to his church. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name, and those who agreed said amen. See if you recognize this movie dialogue. Abominable, can you believe that? Do I look abominable to you? Why can't they call me the adorable snowman or the agreeable snowman for crying out loud? I'm a nice guy. Recognize that? How many of you recognize that? Oh, of course you do. It's the abominable snowman banished to the Himalayas in Monsters, Inc., complaining to Mike and Sully. Now, I don't know about you, but abominable isn't a word I much use. Uh, I can't hardly even say it. And when I hear it, I always associate it with the legendary Yeti. It's just one of those words now that belongs to snowman as if it's one word. Now our text speaks not of abominable, but of an abomination. Verse 15 says, therefore when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, whoever reads, let him understand. Not a phrase we use every day either, abomination of desolation. Neither did the followers of Jesus use it every day, but they all knew immediately what he meant from their history and from their reading of the book of Daniel. Sometimes people will tell you, oh, this phrase, the abomination of desolation, it can have any number of meanings and it's, you know, no one really knows what it means, it's cryptic. That's just not true. Though the Jews didn't refer to it every day, the Jews that Jesus spoke to, his disciples, knew exactly what he meant. And we're gonna see exactly what is the abomination of desolation, and we're gonna show how it is the pivotal statement in this chapter for understanding everything else that the Lord says. Additionally, as interested as we may be in end times prophecy for its own sake, we also want to find insight for living our own lives right now. I'll organize my thoughts around two points. Number one, look closely at what the Lord is showing you. And number two, listen carefully to what the Lord is saying to you. First of all, in verse 15, let's look closely at what the Lord is showing you. And let's get right into the abomination of desolation. This term is found three times in the book of Daniel. We'll look at all three of them. Its definition is found in Daniel 11:31. 31. 
in the prophecy written by Daniel concerning a Syrian ruler by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes who reigned over Syria from 175 to 164 BC, about 400 years after Daniel wrote. So Daniel prophesied this uh, ruler and what he does 400 years before he does it. In his prophecy, Daniel predicted, and I quote, forces shall be mustered by him and they shall defile the sanctuary fortress, then they shall take away the daily sacrifices and place there the abomination of desolation. This was fulfilled in history, so there's no doubt as to what Daniel meant. Antiochus Epiphanes was a great persecutor of the people of Israel, as recorded in the apocryphal books of 1st and 2nd Maccabees. Apocryphal means these are historical books that were written at the time, but they are not part of the established canon of scripture. They're not considered uh, inspired by God, but they nevertheless tell the history of this time. In attempting to stamp out the Jewish religion, Antiochus murdered thousands of Jews, including women and children. He desecrated the temple of Israel, which precipitated the Maccabean revolt against him. Antiochus, in attempting to stop temple sacrifices, offered a sow, an unclean animal, on the altar to render the Jewish temple abominable to the Jews. According to 1 Maccabees 1.54, and I quote, now on the 15th day of Chislev, in the 145th year, they erected a desolating sacrilege on the altar of burnt offering. A statue of a Greek god was installed in the temple. And for a time, after this sow was sacrificed and this statue set up, uh, the sacrifices of the Jews were stopped and the temple was left desolate. Jesus predicted that the action of Antiochus in stopping the sacrifices, in desecrating the temple, and in setting up an idol in the temple are going to be repeated in the future. And so when Jesus said the abomination of desolation, the Jew would have understood immediately what he was talking about from their history and they would understand he was talking about something just like that happening in the future. The future abomination is also described in Daniel, in Daniel 9.27, where it says, then he, speaking of this future person, shall confirm a covenant or a treaty with Israel for one week, that's literally seven years, but in the middle of the week, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wings of abomination shall be one who makes desolate, even until the consummation, which is determined, is poured out on the desolate. Now the prediction is that a future leader will do exactly what Antiochus did in the second century BC, and that future leader we know from comparing other portions of scripture is the man we call Antichrist. Further light is cast on this in Daniel 12, 11, where it says, and from the time that the daily sacrifice is taken away and the abomination of desolation is set up, there shall be 1,290 days, approximately three and a half years uh, of time. The New Testament in 2 Thessalonians 2, 4 describes that same period of time with the leader setting himself up as God in the temple. Revelation 13 also records that an image of the leader will be set up in the temple. And so Jesus says what happened uh, in the past is going to happen in the future when this world leader comes into the temple, desecrates it, and sets up an image 
and, and that is what the Jews are to be looking for, uh, and that is what he's talking about. Now, it may seem clear to you that these events Jesus was referring to are all in the future. However, in the past decade or so, there's been a resurgence among Christians in the popularity of a a doctrine that's called preterism, preterism. The term preterism comes from the Latin praetor, a prefix denoting that something is past or beyond, it's already happened. The preterist view of the end times is based on a symbolic view and reading of the book of the Revelation that holds most of its prophecies have already been fulfilled with the exception maybe of the second coming of Jesus and the resurrection of the dead to either everlasting life or everlasting damnation. And so the preterist will tell you the book of Revelation is mostly fulfilled. It is not a future prophecy at all. Of particular importance to preterists is the argument that the end time prophecies of Revelation were fulfilled in 70 AD when Jerusalem was destroyed by the Romans. That, they say, was the abomination of desolation because it destroyed the temple. And then they go on from there. If you're thinking, who in the world believes that? Preterists you may recognize and read include R.C. Sproul, who is the uh, most prolific reformed apologist of our time, and the Bible answer man, Hank Hanegraaff. Uh, They both have preterist positions, and uh, if you do any research on the internet, or you probably have friends who are preterists, and and they've been telling you that, you know, what we believe about prophecy isn't true, you may be a preterist. If so, you can talk to me afterwards, uh, because you're going to be mad at me. Well, you're already mad at me, and you think I'm stupid. You already texted somebody and say, Pastor Gene is stupid. Uh, We don't believe that. We believe something. Anyway, uh, now you're going to see throughout Jesus' discussion of end times events, that he was looking way past the destruction of the temple and of Jerusalem in 70 AD to a literal great tribulation. Look closely at the events that we're gonna talk about. None of the things he spoke of in Matthew 24 happened in 70 AD, starting with the fact that no image was set up by a leader who desecrated the temple. The temple was destroyed and burned, sure, but no one went in there and set up a, a false sacrifice and then set up a statue of themselves. That did not happen. Speaking to the generation that would be alive at the time, some future generation, Jesus said they would be able to see this event, they would recognize it because it was described in detail in the Bible. You know, I was thinking first service as I went over some of this, some of the stuff that people say is the hardest to understand like the book of Revelation, Jesus said, you're gonna know exactly what I'm talking about. And so people come and say, oh, no one really knows what the abomination of desolation says, and Jesus says, yeah, we do. It's exactly what I'm telling you it is, and you will know it when you see it. And so if we don't see it in history, which we don't, then it hasn't happened. Now, before we move on to talk about what the folks of the Great Tribulation will see and recognize, let's talk about us for just a second. What do we see? Well, on a prophetic level, we see quite a bit. We see Israel, a nation again in her promised land, and that is a direct, literal fulfillment of many centuries-old Bible prophecies. As I want to tell you all the time, the existence of Israel as a nation in her homeland is an absolute miracle fulfillment of Bible prophecy to the letter. Uh, and people say, well, you know, if, I, if, if, if you could prove the Bible was true, then I'd believe in God. You can. 
because God said 2,500 years ago, not just that Israel would be a nation, at first he said they'd be scattered all over the world. And then they would come together as a nation again in the end times and be a cup of trembling to the world and a problem for all the nations of the world. If that isn't fulfilled prophecy, I can't talk to you. Then you're just not honest and you're not seeking the Lord. Now we see a lot of other things which we bring to your attention weekly in our prophecy update series, like today. Here's something else to bear in mind. In light of what we see, the Apostle Peter asks us in his second letter, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct, in godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God? And so Peter says, prophecy is super important because it has an effect on your lives. It's not just intellectual. It's not just so we know what's going to happen. What's going to happen is that Jesus is coming back for the church imminently and then all these other things are gonna unfold. And so Peter says that ought to contribute to holy conduct. You ought to be thinking about the Lord returning and want to be ready for him the way a bride is ready for her bridegroom. And it should promote godliness in terms of how we affect the lives of others, and we should be looking for, and as we look for the return of the Lord, we hasten the coming of the day of God. How do you speed up the coming of the Lord? I guess by being a solid Christian and sharing your faith, because sooner or later, the last person who's going to get saved in this dispensation is going to say, in Jesus' name, amen, and then the rapture's gonna hit. And so the more we get the gospel out, Obviously, just mathematically, the better chance we have of getting to that last person, God knows who it is. And so we should be pursuing God above all else so our lives can be used by God to make a difference with the gospel. Now, Peter said we're to be looking for the day of God. The Lord wants us to see his coming for us by faith and live our lives accordingly. And, you know, some of us, our lives aren't, they're not that good right now. I mean, let's just be honest about it. We've been talking about suffering a lot the last few years. And so I would ask you this morning, what light affliction is assailing you? What trial or trouble are you enduring? Remember, the Lord is coming to take you home. Your departure is booked, your destination is being prepared, you're almost there, so don't grow weary in well-doing. Summertime, a lot of folks have taken vacations. Hopefully you had a smooth vacation. But all of us have a story to tell about some, you know, we booked it and then you got there and, you know, this is the picture and this is the bed. Uh, you know, what, what happened, you know, in between? Do you remodel in reverse, you know, or you get there? You know, you know what I love is you're just dog tired and, and you've already lost your luggage and they don't have your reservation on file. And you know, oh, I've got the number. Yeah, the number means nothing to us. Nothing means anything to us. You don't have a room. And, and you know, those kinds of things. So, you know, that's the kind of world we're used to. But Jesus said, no, you understand, I'm going and I'm gonna prepare a place for you. And the kind of place I'm talking about, it's a mansion in heaven and it's just for you. And when I come for you, I'm gonna receive you to myself. The Bible says there'll be a grand entrance uh, full of rewards uh, and, and it's a guaranteed booking if you're a Christian to a guaranteed destination with upgrades uh, that you haven't even thought of before. And so whatever it is you're going through, it's real, it's sad, it's pressing in on you, but uh, the Lord is coming for you and, and he's always good, is he not? Even when we don't see his goodness, God is always good and all things are working together for the good. We may never see that on earth, but we believe it and it's enough for us to finish well and, and to keep 
pressing on toward the goal of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Now, verses 16 through 25, Listen carefully to what the Lord is saying to you. The abomination Jesus predicted has not yet occurred. It's coming in the future in the middle of a week of years, according to Daniel. A week of years is seven years. Three and a half years is the midpoint. Jesus was talking about the seven-year tribulation. In verses four through 14, he described general characteristics of the time after his ascension into heaven that go right into the first half of the tribulation. At the midpoint, three and one-half years into it, the man we know as Antichrist will do what Antiochus did centuries ago and more. When that happens, if you're a Jew living in Israel, what follows is your survival strategy. You know, survivalism has been a big business the last few years. Well, it always is, but especially Y2K, people were trying to survive Y2K. I bought extra toilet paper if you want to know how I dealt with it because I thought, man, if there's an emergency, I want to be the toilet paper dispenser. Uh, but uh, okay, yeah, I'm, that's currency. That's real currency, you know. Uh, and, uh, and, and there's a big, big survival movement even now. This is how you survive if you're a Jew living in Israel when the Antichrist reveals himself, verse 16, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who is on the housetop not go down to take anything out of his house. And let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. And pray that your flight may not be in winter or on the Sabbath. First, please notice Jesus was warning Jews in Jerusalem. This is a specific command to a specific group of people about a specific future event. It has nothing to do with you and I as the church. The mention of being on the housetop or field suggests urgency. Just run for it, whatever clothes you have on. Women who are pregnant or with infants are going to have a hard time and they're gonna wanna grab provisions. Don't, just get out of there. Winter and the Sabbath highlight potential difficulties to those refugees fleeing. Regarding the Sabbath, Jews are forbidden by their traditions to travel very far on the Sabbath. Even today in Israel, some ultra-Orthodox neighborhoods are barricaded on the Sabbath to prevent driving. Have you seen those little figurines around town? They're little men walking across the street and they have flags and they say slow down or they say whatever you want to put on them. Who are you to put one of those out in the street? I wanna run that thing over. I'm gonna kill it. I'm already driving like an old lady. I'm going 15 miles an hour in my neighborhood. I don't have to have a little man telling me to slow down. It's ridiculous. In Jerusalem and some other Israeli cities, the large Orthodox populations Public buses don't operate on the Sabbath. And so the Jews are serious about not going very far on the Sabbath. And so if this happens on the Sabbath, it's gonna create a dilemma because these Jews are gonna think, wait, Jesus, who I don't believe in, said to run for my life, but I got the Sabbath regulation. You're gonna have to listen to Jesus and get out of Dodge. Now, why must Jews flee immediately? For one thing, the moment the temple is desecrated, the Antichrist will go from protecting Jews to persecuting them. 
But another reason they must flee immediately is because God has promised to supernaturally protect them during their flight and to provide for them in the wilderness for the next three and a half years until the end of the great tribulation. It's not going too far to suggest that God's protection will only extend to those who go immediately. In other words, there's a, there's a window of opportunity to get out of town and it's not tomorrow, it's right now. In Micah 2.12, God said, I will surely assemble all of you, O Jacob. I will surely gather the remnant of Israel. I will put them together like the sheep of a fold, like a flock in the midst of their pasture. They shall make a loud noise because of so many people. Here's a more complete description of the Lord's protection. The same event presented in Revelation 12 from the perspective of heaven showing us that the devil is behind the Antichrist and his persecution. It says in Revelation 12, 12, rejoice heavens and you who dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea for the devil has come down to you having great wrath because he knows that he has a short time. But when the dragon saw that he had been cast to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child this is a reference to Israel as the nation through whom Jesus came. And it says, the woman was given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness to her place where she is nourished for a time and times and half a time, which is in the book of the Revelation, the way they say three and a half years, from the presence of the serpent. And so, uh, Revelation, same event, the Jews flee out into the wilderness and God says, I will protect you with the wings of a great eagle. Now, a lot of people try and say, well, this is the United States sending transport planes to save the Jews. It is not. I wish it was in a sense. Uh, the United States is not in Bible prophecy. I'm not saying we'll be destroyed. I, I'm not saying anything other than we are not in Bible prophecy. The eagle protecting Israel is an ancient reference throughout the Old Testament. Uh, it simply is a, uh, a symbolic way of God saying, I am going to protect you and nothing can harm you. Uh, the Bible further indicates that it is to Basra that the Jews will flee to be protected. Basra is a region in southwest Jordan where the ancient, ancient fortress of Petra is located. If you've read about Petra or saw the pictures, you'll see it's easy to defend because it is only accessible through what is called the seek, a very narrow opening in the natural rock. You go through this little narrow opening and it opens up into this area that is the city of Petra. Of course, Satan is not going to be hindered by some narrow doorway. God supernaturally protects his people in the wilderness. Uh, and so it may be to Petra or more than just Petra that they flee. Wherever they go, if they go where God says, they will be supernaturally protected from the devil. Now, by the way, regarding preterism, in 70 AD, there was no flight by the Jews into the wilderness where they would be nurtured by the Lord for three and a half years. This is all future prophecy. Verse 21, for then there will be great tribulation such as has not been since the beginning of the world until this time, no, nor ever shall be. If the Jews in Jerusalem do not immediately escape, they will be caught instead in a time of trouble 
uh, unprecedented tribulation upon the earth. Now, the term tribulation is used several different ways in the scripture. It is used in a non-technical sense in reference to any time of suffering or testing into which you go. It is also used in a technical sense in reference to the whole period of the seven years of the tribulation. You find that in Revelation 22.2, Matthew 24.29. And it's also used in reference to the last half of the seven-year period of the tribulation as in Matthew 24.21. The Old Testament predicted a time of tribulation that Israel is destined to endure that will result in national repentance and receiving the Lord as their Messiah at his second coming. Jeremiah referred to it as the time of Jacob's trouble. It's probably best to refer to the seven years as the tribulation and the last three and a half years of it as the great tribulation because as you're reading through the Revelation, Chapter six through 18, you find that things, in fact, it's compared to the birth pangs of a woman in labor. They start slowly, but then they come faster and faster. The last three and a half years of the great tribulation are going to be horrific, terrifying, unbelievable events on the earth where I think by the end of that time, four fifths of the world's population has been killed uh, by plague or war or some other judgment. Uh, either by human hand or by divine intervention. And uh, so it's a terrible time. So, the, so you and I, we have tribulation. In the world, you'll have tribulation. Be of good cheer, I've overcome the world. Sometimes people say, well, see, there it is. The Christians are in the tribulation. No, we have little tribulation, tribulation with a small t. Then there's the tribulation, the seven-year period of time that's still future. And there's the great part of the tribulation, the last three and a half years. Listen carefully to what Jesus said. No time in Jewish history, including the Holocaust, fits the description of the great tribulation predicted by Jesus and described by John. It is future, this preterist position, it's just wrong. Verse 22, and unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. Wait, I thought the tribulation was three and a half years long. Well, it is. The word for shortened means cut off. Its use here means that the great tribulation will go exactly as long as God has indicated, not one day more. Maybe a better word would be limited. Those days will be limited to the three and a half years that God has prescribed for them. If not, everyone on earth would have been killed. Now in the Revelation, Jesus sequentially opens seven seals on a scroll. The seventh seal starts a series of seven trumpets being blown and the seventh trumpet starts the pouring out upon the earth of the seven bowls. Uh, And by the time you get there, the earth is pretty well decimated. Putting all these scriptures together, it indicates that the great tribulation will mark the death of hundreds and hundreds of millions of people in a comparatively short period of time. None of that has happened, but it will. Now, who are the elect that are mentioned? Israel is the elect in this passage. They are God's elect nation Israel as a nation is corporately elect. So if you're a Jew, you're part of God's elect people. Now, that doesn't mean you're saved. That doesn't mean you're born again. Because at the time of their flight into the wilderness, they're not saved. Corporate election does not guarantee salvation. Individual Jews will still need to be saved by grace through faith in Jesus. In fact, up until that moment, the Jews will have embraced the Antichrist as a kind of savior. 
because he is the one who steps forward and initiates a peace treaty and promises to protect them for seven years. It's in the middle of that seven years, which we know as the tribulation, that he reveals himself and persecutes Israel. And so these are not saved Jews. This is God uh, protecting his elect people, his chosen nation, until they can be saved, and they will be when? When Jesus returns. In Zechariah 12, eight, it says, in that day, the Lord will defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem. The one who is feeble among them in that day shall be like David, and the house of David shall be like God, like the angel of the Lord before them. Shall be in that day, I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. I will pour it out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. They will look on me whom they pierced. They will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. And so the Lord will return in his second coming and when he does, all those Jews that have been supernaturally protected by God will recognize Jesus Christ of Nazareth coming back, wounded for them, crucified for them, and they will receive him as their savior. Paul the apostle says it plainly, Romans eleven twenty six. all Israel will be saved. Every living Jew at the time of Christ's return, protected in that wilderness, will turn to him and be saved. Verse 23, then if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or there, don't believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will rise and show great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. In the Revelation, we're told that the image of Antichrist in the temple comes to life. It says the image of the beast should both speak and cause as many as who would not worship the image to be killed. There will be other deceiving miracles, signs and wonders, but the Lord has told the Jews beforehand, don't be drawn out of the place of protection. The Antichrist and the devil will try unsuccessfully to lure the elect Jews out from their fortress in order to destroy them. Sadly, many people all over the world will be deceived and lost for eternity. Now, need I mention there is no record of false Christs or false prophets or signs and wonders in 70 AD. You just cannot in any way say that these things have already been fulfilled. There's a scholarly debate on whether or not Satan can do a genuine miracle even with God's permission. There are good men who argue on both sides. Whether these are genuine but meant for evil miracles or they are Houdini type tricks, people are going to be led astray. It's gonna be important for the Jews who see the abomination of desolation to listen carefully to what Jesus said in this discourse and to follow his instructions to the letter if they want to be saved physically, eventuating in their being saved eternally. It's no less important for us today to listen and obey. The Lord tells us as much in his word about how to live. All of it comes from the heart of a father wanting what is best for his children. I think it's important sometimes before you read the Bible, I know everybody has a routine and they say obviously you should pray before you read the Bible and that's that's true uh, and that's good. But I think you should, as you approach the Bible, think that I am going to hear from my father. My father. And all of us have some idea of what a good, loving father is desires for his children. Some of you are fathers, and though we all fall short, 
we have a heart that wants to protect and nurture and love and see our children grow and develop and build their own lives, those kinds of things. When I come to the word of God, I am hearing from that person in my life, my father. And so before I even read anything, I know that whatever he tells me to do is for my good. It's ultimately for my good to lead the best life possible for me and to affect the most people. And sometimes when I'm in those difficult times, those dark times, those, you know, rather than accuse God or wonder where he is, I just need to remember that God is good and that he's good all the time and that there are things going on that I can't possibly comprehend, but he will work all things together for the good to them that love him and are the called according to his purpose. And so maybe God has asked you to do something. Maybe he's asked you to go somewhere. It's for your good. Maybe it's time to obey or at least start praying about it again. I know Christians who have put off things for decades, things that God said, well, I'd like you to, to look into, well, maybe, maybe after this or maybe after, after I have a family, after I retire, you know, pretty soon it's after you're dead. And, and so if, if there's something like that, revisit it. Maybe he's been telling you something, but you just won't receive it. It could be a reproof. God reproves us. We need reproving. We're all sinners, right? There are things going on in our lives that we don't even like. And so the Lord just agrees with us. He says, hey, let's, let's deal with this right now. And so maybe you can visit that. Maybe the Lord is trying to tell you something that we would consider positive, but your eyes are blinded to it because of the trial that you're in, because of the struggling, because of the suffering. As much as we don't like to admit it, we are also the people who say, why, God? Why are you allowing this when you could easily overcome this? And sometimes there's an answer to that. Sometimes there's not. Maybe God just wants you to walk by faith and receive something today from his word, like Romans 8, 28, all things work together for the good. Do I really believe that? If I really believe it, am I acting upon it? Is my life reflecting that? Uh, and so the Lord wants to do some business with our hearts. Uh, he's all, as I said at the beginning, always trying to speak to us through his word. And if you're wondering what it sounds like, it sounds like something Jesus said. Because Jesus said, if you've seen me, if you've heard me, if you know anything about me, then you know everything about God. Let's pray.